Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, you're listening to Politics on the Couch. I'm Raphael Baer regular host of what has become once again a somewhat less than regular podcast after our record-breaking run of weekly episodes earlier in the year it's all gone a bit sporadic again sorry about that my excuse is that i've been busy publicizing a book i wrote did i mention that i wrote a book it's called politics a survivor's guide available in all good bookshop well oh surely you know that by now there's a book out. Do please enjoy it. And in it, there's a chapter, chapter 11, in fact, all about political journalism, how it works, why it sometimes doesn't work, what it means to be an insider and whether it's healthy for democracy to have a special clique of extremely well-connected hacks with a political equivalent of the VIP access all areas wristbands you get at festivals. It's called a lobby pass. I've got one as it happens, and I'm very fond of it for what are probably obvious reasons. It's very handy having privileged security clearance to swan around the Palace of Westminster at will, but I'm not unaware that what's useful and fun for me and my colleagues might not be the best metric of a healthy relationship between power and the press. In fact, that's what that chapter in the book is all about. And it's a conversation I've also often had with a friend of mine, someone I got to know in the lobby over many years. Journalist and writer I respect enormously. His name is Robert Hutton. Rob to his friends. And since you're a Politics on the Couch listener, and he's going to be our guest this week, you now count among his friends. The podcast hasn't dealt much with a practical business, let alone the psychology of political journalism and the lobby, and it struck me that Rob would be a great guide. He's a highly experienced news reporter. He sat in countless Downing Street press conferences, travelled on planes with prime ministers, huddled round spokespeople. He's been to the White House. He's wined and dined ministers. He knows the ways of the strange tribe that is the lobby. He's also a great writer, by the way, author of a number of engaging and entertaining books, including most recently Agent Jack. An account of the extraordinary true story of how the UK security services secretly monitored Nazi sympathisers during the Second World War. It turns out there are a lot more of them than is commonly remembered in the stories Britain prefers to tell about its war record. But I didn't get Rob on the podcast to talk about the war. We may have mentioned it once, but I think we got away with it. This is a podcast episode about journalism, politics, truth, lies, corruption, integrity and proximity to power. It was recorded a few months ago, so a few things have changed since then. Most relevant to our conversation, the final report of the Privileges Committee into Boris Johnson's lies to Parliament came out. Guess what? Turns out he is a massive liar. 
We kind of knew that when we were recording the podcast, though. It's a point Rob has made various ways in his extremely funny and often very poignant pieces for the Critic magazine, for whom he is the parliamentary sketchwriter. And that's where our conversation starts, with me asking him to explain what that actually involves. But so, so not everyone knows what a parliamentary sketch is. I mean, the, the sort of the famous sketch writers are Simon Hoggart, uh, Matthew Paris, John Crace. Um, and the idea is you do a reporter parliament that somehow by giving a bit of colour and a bit of flavour is, is, is truer than a dry report where you just said the prime minister said this, leader of the opposition said that, uh, you know, Tory MP said this. You try to sort of you try to convey what it felt like to be there. And it, it has generally become you try to convey what it felt like to be there with jokes, partly because actually when you, as you know, when you're actually sitting up in the press gallery, we're all quite tightly packed in. What happens is that there is a sort of little whispered running commentary uh, going on between all of these bodies where, you know, uh, the prime minister will say something and, and, and somebody will so your person next to you will sort of pass a remark. Uh, yes, well, he would say that, wouldn't he, sort of thing. And so it, so actually the, the flavour of being there is often funny. I mean, it is often funny, but also you're right. There is a very particular idiom to Parliament, uh, which is about the mood in that you know, that tiny cramped chamber you know, on, on a big set piece occasions. It's over full with people. And you're right. There, one of the protagonists in the political drama is the atmosphere in the room and it's something that and and things that aren't necessarily going on center stage so it's not necessarily about so it's the thing if if it's prime minister's questions yes obviously there's the exchange between the prime minister and leader of the opposition but if a particular mp is very agitated and wants to do something you see that in the corner of your eye and it's quite interesting seeing someone bobbing up and down to try and catch the speaker's eye one thing i'd compare it to if when you go to a, a, a see a football game live like the thing that you can never see unless you never really get when you watch the highlights or you watch it on TV, is the little sub dramas that unfold, you know, at a certain corner of, of the stadium, there might be a bit of niggle between a defender and the away fans because they've all one particular tackle that they saw particularly closely and knew about. And, and he might, do you know what I mean? There's all these little things, yeah. little subplots that, that you as a sketch writer can say, actually, this is really what's happening in Parliament around this. This is how we're learning something about politics. Um, but it's a very specific idiom. When Tory MPs were starting to lose faith in Boris Johnson, there was a PMQs where they just didn't turn up. That wasn't, I think, obvious on TV because you, oh, it, there, were, there were all sorts of rules apart from anything else about what they're allowed to broadcast in terms of wide shots and tight shots. And they're not, they're, it's, it's not like football. The, the BBC aren't allowed to say, actually, tell you what, Give us the cameras over in that corner. That's much more interesting than the person who's speaking. Is this this little row going on between these two people here? They they basically they're they're quite constrained. But you but when you sat there, you thought, where have all the Tory MPs gone? Uh, this was this was I think it was around Partygate, um, and they'd all just they we never quite got to the bottom of whether it was organised or semi-organised or all of them just woke up that morning and thought I can't bear to go and sit behind him and cheer. Um, I think probably it was at least semi-organized, but that was the sense of, oh, he's lost the dressing room. Uh, you know, if he, he can't even get his MPs to turn up the one, you know, half hour of the week when it's their job to turn up and, and cheer for him, then he's got a real problem. Uh, and, and you don't, you, you can't really see that on TV. You, there was when, um, uh, Sunak brought back his, uh, his, uh, Windsor Agreement—that's what we're calling it. The, the New Northern Ireland deal, 
when the, when the framework what was really striking in the room was that the the cheers for him were i mean actually, actually painful ear splittingly painful in a way you know that when 350 people all yell quite close to you in a small space it is and i thought gosh i haven't heard that never heard it for trust you know she never she never had them sunak hasn't had them boris johnson did have them for a long time but then of course because because lockdown sort of constrained parliament's ability to sit basically you hadn't heard that since he won the election that's very interesting yes yeah you're right and i haven't been in that much and i've forgotten i mean i remember it in the you know it used to be a feature of particularly budget speeches when the just the sound the noise of it was so intense and the speaker would lose control and when the because the leader of the opposition does the budget response uh, you you know when i remember ed Miliband did there were occasions when you know, he he was just beaten by the crowd. He couldn't assert his authority over the sheer mob. I mean, going back to the Boris Johnson thing, I imagine that in your position, there's a source of ambivalence around someone like that because, bluntly speaking, he was just great material for a sketch writer. Uh, <laughs> but also, presumably, the thing that makes him great material didn't make him a good prime minister. And as a citizen, you're t- are you torn between thinking... Um, this is professionally great material for me, but for the country, I want him to go now, please. I thought he was unfit to be prime minister. And again, the one nice things I, about doing a sketch is you can more or less say that. My Before I did this, I, I wrote for a long time for Bloomberg where you couldn't say he's unfit to be prime minister. And actually, I think I would have found all of that very, very constraining because, you know, we've had bad prime ministers before. Um, and we've had, or we've had, it's, it, it, they're all bad prime ministers in the end, aren't they? You know, it, 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 they, they, so. why is that? Does the job just, is it, I mean, is it the job selects the wrong people? Is it someone recently told me, this is a digression. Sorry, producer Phil. No, it's fine. We're going to digress. No, I'm not apologizing to you. I apologize to the producer who's sitting there going, Raph, why are you taking us off on this tangent? But it is quite interesting. The, um, uh, I could apologize to you as well, Rob. Sorry, I'm being, they don't want to be discourteous, but the, you know, I was talking to uh, a former number 10 person who said, look, we had in Theresa May to an extent, in Boris Johnson to a large extent, in Liz Truss to an equally large extent, someone who not only was it obvious from the outside, really, to a lot of people that they they couldn't do the job and in 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 the Johnson and Truss case, unfit to do the job, really. But the people around them who put them in the job knew that they were unfit for the job and did it anyway. And that's a really serious systemic problem, isn't it, with the the way that democracy functions? I was thinking about Theresa May this morning because I was reading something that her uh, former chief of staff or co-chief of staff, Fiona Hill, had said about the fact that they were plotting to put her in the job from 2010. And I was thinking, <laughs> why was she so bad at it then? And then actually, I remember the, the first year, it was not obvious that she was, I think you could, I think in the first year, in the 2016 to 2017, basically up until the election, there were all sorts of things that you could point to that you go, mm, I, I didn't handle that terribly. But there were all, there were other things where you thought, you know, she did all right. She sort of, she, she, she handled that okay. She's, I think partly we're really bad, and I mean, I include the political press in this, we're really bad at assessing what qualities someone needs. So, you know, there was sort of when someone like David Cameron comes along, who's got he's got the right kind of born to rule sort of air about him. He sort of talks right. He's good. At, he's good. At, he was good at 
lots of the bits of it good at remembering people's names good at being polite to opposition mps uh made a lot of the right noises about you know sort of not trying to be a demented sort of a uh, pursuer of the news media but just trying to sort of uh mosey along doing sensible things and then you know you look back on the david cameron era and you say well austerity was you know probably a mistake certainly sort of um even even from his side the massive benefit cuts that they that they tried to bring in in 2015 were were a huge mistake i mean they were a huge mistake for him because they led to brexit so so or you can certainly make that case that that a, a lot of a lot of yeah the the anger that you stoked by basically yes. making people feel they had yeah they, the system was essentially making them poorer it created a time for a change moment there were all sorts of silly things that they'd done that meant that when uh as i think you used to put it you know when when you then offered them a offered voters a button and said if you're angry you might like to press this but we'd rather you didn't and astonishingly lots of people were angry with how the way that things were going and they all pressed the button and so cameron falls so so sort of so at that point you think okay actually cameron was quite bad at being prime minister it looked like he was quite good at being prime minister he sort of he seemed like a plausible kind of fellow uh but actually he was rubbish at it because he he blew himself up um right well this is and this is exactly the point that i, I, I want to kind of drill into here because he had all the cameron had all the perfect external presentations of someone who ought to have been by the idiom of both the British establishment and political journalism's collective wisdom, a prime minister, a good prime minister. He was, I remember him coming into the observer one time and meeting and yeah, this, the observer's essentially full of liberal left leaning people. And most of them weren't terribly impressed by David Cameron, but we came out of the meeting and I remember someone turning to me and saying, yeah, well, he's just got prime minister written all over him, hasn't he? When he was <clears> leader of the opposition, he was clearly going to win and he was clearly going to be prime minister. You know, where is the failing there you know, from a journalistic point of view? You know, and, and we can be as self-critical as we like about this. That meant that the lobby in particular just has some evaluative sort of metric that isn't really looking at whether or not this is the right person to do the most important job in politics. Some of it is bluntly. There are newspapers that are that, if they possibly can, are going to say that you ought to vote conservative, and uh, and you know people who work for those newspapers are broadly going to sort of going to write the sorts of things that that their editors will print and that their proprietors want to see printed. And I, I, in a sense, actually, what they're going to do is write what readers want to read. The the, the whole Fox News thing in the states this is another tangent but the fact that those presenters in the wake of the january 6th whatever it was um were saying look we we, we're losing our viewers if we say that that trump lost the election they are ultimately even fox news is following its its audience and my assumption is that people who buy the daily mail every day want to read the sorts of things that the daily mail prints uh why else would they just like people who read the guardian uh want to read the sorts of things that the guardian prints and so that that creates this sort of feedback loop where broadly you know as a news reporter you know the sorts of things your readers are interested in even at bloomberg which is not it wasn't partisan you you knew that your readers were interested in particular subjects and so you made sure that you covered those subjects a part of 
why did people write David Cameron up nicely was because he was the conservative candidate. You know, these are people who wrote Michael Howard up nicely. These are people who would have written Ian Duncan Smith up nicely. I have this dating theory of politics where the whole thing is about being on a date with somebody. And when you go on a date with somebody you want to impress, you're, you're sort of trying to, trying to do the look. If I were your boyfriend, you know, I would be the kind of person who turned up on time and, uh, and who looked smart and had had a shower. Um, and uh, was interested in whatever it was that you wanted to talk about, you know, that's the kind of boyfriend I could be. And, uh, and you know, maybe things get a bit further in as well. You know, if uh, if we got married, you know, I'd be the kind of person who could make enough money so that, you know, we could have a house and all of this kind of thing. And you're just, it's not conscious, but that is what we're all trying to do. And And I think a good leader of the opposition is trying to do the same thing. If I were your prime minister... I'd be the kind of prime minister who would look good outside the door of number 10. You know, I I wouldn't. And actually, he was up against Gordon Brown. I wouldn't be the kind of prime minister who turned up at the White House with my trousers tucked into my socks for reasons that no one no one ever got to the bottom of. I, you know, I I wouldn't sort of wander off the stage. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make us look stupid. Um, and when David Cameron went to the White House, he looked tremendous. He did all of that fantastically well but you know just like people are bad at choosing boyfriends and girlfriends um and indeed choosing spouses we're quite bad at choosing leaders so i mean so there's a it's hard to disentangle so much a chicken and egg problem here isn't there that the media are saying well we 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 like the cut of this person's jib and we think they are impressive and we write them up setting aside the question of whether there's just a, an innate fleet street bias for the tories which yeah, there obviously is in a section of the press um there i think there is also a, a more kind of insidious cultural thing that and i don't know if it happens in other countries as well where the type of politician who develops a good relationship with the media brings a whole set of skills that are part of mm. the glib kind of parlor game culture it's not just that you're good at presentation it's that you're good at gaming the lobby you're good at gaming uh, the the game of being good at politics and too many of those journalists ourselves included sometimes who are in Westminster all the time think that writing up who's winning that game is also writing up who's good at politics and they might not be the same thing in fact they probably aren't the same thing I really notice it whenever you say you whenever you read someone saying that someone's an effective minister, and I just whenever I see that, I think, well, gosh, how do we know? You know, I mean, we know when someone's an ineffective minister. I think that we can say that Gavin Williamson was not a very effective education secretary at a point when it, would, it might have been quite nice to have one. I was just talking to a diplomat the other day who sort of I asked them how they felt about keeping James Cleverly, and they said, "Oh, we really like him. He's really good." and Part of that is apparently that he just uh, not all of his predecessors have been particularly interested in doing diplomacy, and and James Cleverly is quite good at that. Part of it may simply be, in a sense, what what a civil servant means by he's a good minister in a Sir Humphreyish way is he does he does what I tell him. I give him the three options with a you know with one one of them in bold saying, I mean you could do you could do those, but this is what I'd like you to do. And, and he takes advice. And I, I can see from, you know, just all, all of us who have been managed, that's what we value in a manager is, is, is ultimately somebody who, who takes our advice. Whether that actually makes them an effective manager or not, you know, of, often it does. It's so hard because, because a lot of, a lot of it is about, are you a good leaker? 
you know, are you somebody who is who's a good luncher? I have you have you sort of made made excellent contacts? So there have been there was certainly in the in the late Theresa May era there was a period where where I think pretty much everyone in the lobby had a pretty good idea of who was leaking to everyone else, and we were all engaged in this slightly frantic, sort of frantic lunching schedule of trying to trying to meet cabinet ministers and say hey i i understand that you're basically putting it out there if you ever want to put it to me i'll you know i'll i will i will take your leaks too certainly when i see a political as a right that so and so is an effective minister i the part of my brain that very cynically says oh he's your source you mean he he, he briefs you <laughs> yeah at some point presumably and well in fact we know that yeah there is a tension that arises if someone has been a very reliable source and mm. good Amount of information and they are then the center of the story a decision has to be made well i'm going to have to burn this contact because you know i have to write up what what a terrible person they are or just that they've done this bad thing that means they should probably resign which is unfortunate for me because then they're no longer going to be at the cabinet table giving me information um uh, and you know it's obvious what the right thing to do in that situation is um i, I don't um, I, I imagine not everyone does the right thing every time. I certainly can recall when Damien McBride was uh, sort of when that plane was crashing into the ground in the Brown era that there were political editors who had had an awful lot of good stuff from him who were very, very, very reluctant to do the story. I mean, to, to counterexample, I would be astonished if Matt Hancock, who is an extremely savvy uh, media savvy cabinet minister who clearly sort of um, before everything blew up thought of himself as a future prime minister they all think of themselves as future prime ministers don't they but but Matt Hancock really I'd be astonished if Matt Hancock and I, I, I should say one one never reveals anyone else's sources or your own sources I have no idea but I would be astonished if he had not maintained good relations with Harry Cole who is the political editor of the sun you would be daft if you wanted those things you're i'm sure that you have you try and have a good relationship with one of the most important journalists in your world and yet you know when harry cole is handed pictures of um of matt hancock up against his office door uh they still the sun still ran the story so people ultimately are willing to throw throw their contacts overboard yeah, that's a rational calculation. I mean, that's a huge, enormous story. And they'll, they'll, whoever, and if you're the political editor of the Sun, whoever the next Tory minister is, they're going to want to have to have a relationship with you. So well, the, you know, the power there is, is very, is not necessarily with the minister. Yeah. I, and I think, I think that does, that does help the, the press becomes the kind of the permanent opposition. So yes, you know, the new health secretary will also take your calls. But, you know, it is a, a famous, you know, as was it Stanley Baldwin said, you know, power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot through the ages, whatever that sense that, I mean, I would like to think that we are the fourth estate pillar of a liberal democratic order and that, you know, therefore, and that function, ha- you know, brings with it all sorts of ethical obligations that we fulfill out of a sense of duty and obviously shouldn't need regulating because that would be an affront to the freedom of the press. Um, that's the principle, right? Um, what, slightly worries me and i find a bit distasteful and have done when you spend too much time in the lobby is the sense that there is a tension between the need for proximity to actually know what the story is you need to have intimacy enough to actually know what's going on in politics but without complicity and i'm not sure how easy it is to to police that boundary i mean is there a point at which to be good enough at the at the at the insider journalism 
you have to become an insider and then you become a courtier. How do you be an insider but not a courtier? I don't think everyone manages that, frankly. I, I was never that much of an insider. Um, at the point at which I was working for Bloomberg, no one no one was really that fussed about keeping Bloomberg on board in the way that, that they were fussed about keeping the sun on board or the mail. Temperamentally, I am a lot happier being a sketch writer and telling people that what they just said is ridiculous than I am at nodding and and saying to them, oh, yes, you know, that's very, very sensible, very wise. That's obviously the solution. Someone like Michael Gove makes the jump, you know, and, and goes from being a, a sort of a, a, a courtier on the outside to being an actual courtier. James Forsyth of The Spectator has just sort of made this made this jump. He He's a very old friend of Rishi Sunak's and Rishi Sunak asked him to come and work for him. So, so he did. And, and he indeed may be more comfortable being inside Downing Street, helping Sunak, his old friend, than sort of, than sitting at the spectator in the Times trying to, trying to write critically about one of his closest friends. I can see that that would be very awkward. Yeah, but the, the extraordinary thing about that is that yeah, there was also a period where he had his cake and ate it, you know, where he was still a political editor of the Spectator and writing columns for the Times, um, while actually his oldest school friend was Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, and and one of the interesting things about those the Matt Hancock WhatsApp messages is that exchange with his old friend and mentor. George Osborne says, can I have the splash on the standard, please? And, and George Osborne goes, yeah, yeah, I think we can do that for you. I can basically write a, a favourable front page for the government. Why not? And you think, well, obviously, like, there are lots of words you could apply to that. I mean, essentially, it's corrupt, isn't it? I mean, from a journalistic point of view, that was not George Osborne doing what an editor of a newspaper ought to do by the rules of journalistic integrity, as you or I might understand them. Right. So that, that was just corrupt from a journalistic point of view. I don't know I would necessarily use the word corrupt. I certainly think that George Osborne ought to be embarrassed. Would you not use the word corrupt because there might be a legal problem with using the word corrupt? In which case, should I say, obviously, there is no evidence that George, George Osborne has done anything wrong. No, I don't. Well, it's not so much that. I suppose I just think, in a sense, if you have, you know, if you have somebody with George Osborne as editor of the Standard, none of us ever thought that George Osborne was anything other than a Tory at the point at which he was editing the Standard, if you see what I mean. The, the interesting thing was the extent to which he was willing to run stories that were hostile to the Tories. Now, it's partly, obviously, because he didn't like Theresa May. Well, but again, that's a readership point. London readers vote Labour. I mean, it's madness that London's main newspaper was this Tory paper. I mean, look, all of us would be embarrassed if our WhatsApp messages were, were published. Uh, all of, largely, of course, to journalists. It's, it's catty things that we've said about other journalists. Speak for yourself, Rob. I've never indulged in that. So what one hears that such a thing goes on. So... <laughs> I'm told that that's, that's, that's the sort of thing that other people do in WhatsApp. Would you be really embarrassed? Would you sort of, would you feel like, actually, do you know what, professionally, this compromises me? I, I actually, my, my slight issue with George Osborne is I'm not sure that he would, he, he, he does feel as embarrassed as he ought to feel about that Hancock exchange. Well, that's, I suppose, when I say that's probably what I meant by corrupt, I meant it more as in a kind of moral and biological mm. sense, a kind of a rottenness, that there's a kind of a decay there of the system as it's supposed to work. At that level, I guess the thing is that basically having George Osborne in that job was a, was a, an example of that, that you should, you should, you should pick one or pick the other. When I was at Bloomberg, I would not have been allowed, if my best man, you know, my best man, my oldest friend had been Chancellor of the Exchequer, basically they would have said, look, you need to, you need to go and write about companies or something. You can't, you can't still be writing about this guy because nobody will trust what you're writing. And 
they were you know i mean you couldn't have dated somebody who was working in downing street or anything like that all, all of that would have been just completely sort of that is so there's two issues here one is a there's a media problem that it's just a small yeah there yeah it, it people knocking around the same they went a lot of them went to the same schools went to the same university uh go to the same parties although the uk is a big country westminster is as the metaphor always has it, a village. Mm. And so, uh, you know, there's a sort of and a revolving door of people who've been special advisors or people who've rather been political editors or journalists going on to be special advisors. Poachers turn gamekeepers and then poacher again. Um, so that's yeah. one, that's one problem that I suspect is probably common to a lot of political cultures, because if you're interested in yes. politics, you're, you know, you're more interested in that than you are perhaps in being a journalist. So ultimately, if you get the opportunity to be even more inside, uh, you might you might take it. That's one problem. And then the other problem, which is I mean, going back to what you're saying about does George Osborne think there was anything wrong with what he did? Uh, and that is the problem of shamelessness that you the sense that whatever it is that we think is the parameter that is an ethical line that people might or might not want to cross. It's only policed in your conscience, ultimately. And so if you don't simply don't have that line in your conscience, then does the parameter exist? <laughs> the Melia one is so interesting. I had never felt awkward about the fact that I didn't go to Oxford until I went and started working in the lobby and just... Oh, sorry, Rob. I'm going to have I, to stop you there. I didn't realise you didn't not... go to Oxford, so that's yeah, podcast over. <laughs> I know. Sorry. It's just... We're, we're now sufficiently old that I'm now kind of in the university application zone um, for, for my children. And you think about all sorts of things, but I'm aware that there's this little voice in my mind that says they have to try to go to Oxford because everyone goes to Oxford. And I, 20 years ago, I didn't think that. But everyone I work with seems to have seems to have gone to Oxford and to have known each other at Oxford and uh, very often went out with each other at Oxford. And you're sitting there thinking, I, 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 I'm very much a... A, a son of middle class privilege. I, you know, I, I've had a very, very happy home country's upbringing. Went to a great Russell Group University in Edinburgh. Had a fantastic time. But you do suddenly realise that, that actually this tiny group of people uh, do all seem to just seem to have been living with each other for for the last two or three decades, and that affects. All sorts of things. Like, there's a very good piece by James Kirkup in the the Times uh, this week. We're talking about which universities really help social mobility, and his point was that Queen Mary University of London in East London does far more for social mobility because it takes a whole load of kids from East London who were never going to go to Oxford and educates them and gives them degrees, and they go on to do great things. And I agree, it was a really interesting piece again because he also made the point that actually the universities that serve people who don't go away from home, people who local univer who go to their local university, which is very much not the model of the conception of what university experience is supposed to be for you know when we were growing up, you know, the sort of elite and the upper mm. middle class tier that went off to grand sounding universities. That was the conception of what it was supposed to be. Um, yeah, it, uh, are boosting the local economy and helping turn parts of the country that might otherwise not have much going for them into places that might have something going for them because they've got a great university there. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Aside from the the sort of Oxbridge elements of it, there is a a set of codes and idioms and a lifestyle that goes around being in Westminster that also and that sort of narrates itself as distinct and mm. you know, that almost gets a kick out of the way in which it is like the thick of it even it became more like the thick of it by having watched the thick of it and deciding to become more like that. Do you know what I mean? There's this iterative process where, or, you know, with a bit of throwing a bit of like, aren't we in the West Wing? Well, no, you're just in a horrible damp room on committee corridors, really not at all like the West Wing. But that sense that in their own minds, people are performing something that's so distinctly political, both as lobby journalists and special advisors, they are more one tribe than they are, opposing sides of something and they ought to be slightly opposing sides almost inevitably a group of people who work in one geographic location on broadly similar salaries working broadly similar hours will tend to end up finding them their, their minds especially if they all went to you know broadly similar universities will find their minds all moving in broadly similar ways i vivid memory about 2009 when gordon brown had announced they were getting rid of some child tax credit thing or other it was a 10p tax wasn't it he kept the chart the, the tax credits this is much worse you'll remember better than me sorry this this story so so they had they were getting rid of the thing that i could that i could use as a parent of small children and a uh, then higher rate taxpayer to buy childcare vouchers and it's basically a tax break for people who were on the 40% rate to pay for childcare and they were getting rid of it for you know for perfectly good reasons that if you're if if times are tight you, you take from the rich first but what they had failed to grasp was that this was the one bit of childcare tax policy that the entire lobby understood because we were all using it I remember the conference briefing where the where the guy was trying to answer questions about it where I think the guy who was trying to answer questions about it wasn't using it and was facing 30 irate and I have to say men all of whom 
you know, were ticking this box on their tax form every year. And, and it was worth a few hundred quid. But, you know, and we'd all gone, and you all, you had to jump through some hoops to take care of it. And then you had to sort of hand it to your provider and this kind of thing. And I just remember thinking, gosh, this is awful, because there are all sorts of things that they're doing that we don't understand. Of all the things that the lobby knows inside out and you know, can has expertise in, benefits policy, as applies to people who aren't higher rate taxpayers, is not one of them, in my experience. There's a there's no, very weak... No, no, completely. In the same way that I think, you know, I can't believe we've managed to avoid the subject for so long, but you know, I, I don't think Brexit, or Brexit might not have happened if the lobby had known about how the EU works and what it actually is in the same level of insider detail that it knows about how domestic UK politics is and how it works. So there were things that were said to certain journalists who wrote them up as splashes in supposedly mm. very serious newspapers that on the, in the order of you know, the German car makers will come to our rescue and give us a, you know, tell Angela Merkel to give us a great deal. That, that genre of, of opinion, um, brief from number 10, that the whatever the English the UK political equivalent of that assertion would have been something like, oh, it's okay, we can you know, for the Tories to say, oh, it's okay, we could afford afford to lose Mid Bedfordshire because we're going to win Islington North. It's like, no, you're not. Yes, that's just not anyone who knows how this works knows that's simply not true. That's a stupid thing to say. But because it was about Europe, and <laughs> but it was in the lobby. The level of ignorance of what constituted a serious thing to say and what constituted just a stupid thing to say that clearly no one should believe, the guardrails weren't there. Yeah. Is that unfair? Yeah, no, no, no to- totally. No, that's, that's, that's totally. So Brexit, Brexit coverage was fascinating to work for Bloomberg doing Brexit coverage because Bloomberg has a proper bureau in Brussels that understands Brussels. I, I, I think some of Bloomberg's uh, Brussels correspondents are the best in the business. So very, very plugged in. Just, just understood the dynamics of it. Used to reporting it from all sorts of countries, and you, and we also had a, you know, a bureau in every one of the capitals. So when somebody said, "Oh well, the Italians think this," uh, we had somebody in Italy who could tell us whether the Italians really did think this, <laughs> whether they were really thinking it's okay. We want to sell prosecco, so you can have your cake and eat it in the single market. <laughs> Guess what? No. Yes, yeah, you know, and, and, and somebody who somebody who bluntly knew who the Italian prime minister was. Whereas British newspapers had all got rid of, broadly got rid of their Brussels correspondents, or if they'd kept them, the job of Brussels correspondent had been one of the first things that Boris Johnson corrupted was the, the role of Brussels correspondent. So it was no longer sort of somebody who understood what was going on in Brussels and told you about it. It was somebody whose job it was to provide sort of massively entertaining stories about lunatic Europeans. And that person is not the person uh, who is going to, to say this is all rubbish. And the, the, I mean, I was very conscious throughout the sort of the Brexit period that you would see splashes in papers that were sort of the Europeans are going to do this that were briefed from London. And, I, you know, you, I gave up even calling Brussels to say this is bollocks, isn't it? Because they, they would just say <laughs> they're not. We know what, the, you know, literally we know what the Europeans are going to do because they've told us and they've, they've said it in public. And there's, and there obviously sometimes people say things in public that aren't actually what they're actually going to do in private. And indeed, sometimes that was the case with Brussels. Let's be clear, you know, they're not saints in all of this. But broadly, what happened was what Brussels, you know, was that 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 was what they said would happen. Yeah, there, there were there were no if you, if you were paying attention in 2016, there were no huge surprises in 2019. One of the remarkable things about that process was that. 
I think, and well, a lot of the, and I've heard this from people who used to work at the Foreign Office and now don't, and people on the European side will say that the mis- a mistake that was made in Brussels was looking at some of that stuff and thinking, well, this is obviously a game that's being played and it's a bit annoying and parochial and trivial, but clearly the UK is ultimately a serious country and it's a G7 country and there are grown-up ministers who have risen to the top of their game and these are serious newspapers, somewhere in this mechanism, there are people who know this isn't true. And they actually, they have a beg, this is all part of a plan. And then they would meet the ministers who would come to Brussels and they would, the EU side would go, wow, no, no, you actually think this is true. You say this stuff because you believe it. And they write this stuff because they really don't understand. And that was quite shocking for them to think, Oh no, you, you, you did this thing in this referendum. There really is no plan. You're not being clever. It is exactly as stupid as it looks. You and I can and have talked about Brexit all night, but, but this goes much wider than, than that. I mean, how many sort of political journalists, how many journalists generally live in a block of flats? I do. There's was, was a really big issue after Grenfell where it's just like, didn't, I didn't grow up in flats. I've never lived in a tower block. I, so. Um, so I have no idea what, what you're supposed to do if you're in a block of flats and it catches fire. It's, it's just, and I don't think I'm unusual in the, the sort of, in the political class. Obviously, race is, you know, I mean, the media has got more diverse than it, than it was when I came in, but I do remember vividly sort of 30, 25 years ago, when we, there was a meningitis um, outbreak and the popular tabloid newspaper I was working for at the time did a sort of, did one of these, how to tell if your child, if your the rash is meningitis or not, you have to press a cold glass against it. And, you know, and it, it's whether the skin turns pink or whatever. And I, after it had gone to press, someone said, I wonder what, I wonder how it works for black skin. There was, cause there was no one in the office, barely anyone in the office who, you know, who had children with black skin. Well, I'm sure say is, 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 this is not malicious. It's not that, that we on the paper sort of didn't care what happened to, to black children. It's that nobody had thought if, as it were, a black skinned person had been involved in any stage of the production of that piece, they would have said, this doesn't apply. Yeah. And there's, there's just lots of stuff like that where it's not, it's not malicious. It's not. And I, I think people sort of get, people get this idea that the lobby is a, is a conspiracy and and so on and obviously there are all sorts of bits of it that are but a lot of it is is thoughtless which is not an excuse you know i don't think there's anyone in the lobby who who is racist to the point where they would not care you know what happened to children of different race or i don't think there's anyone in the lobby who's sort of so awful that they don't care about people in tower blocks i don't actually think there's anyone in parliament very few people in parliament who just don't care about people in tower blocks, they can see, you know, it, it, MPs and even the richest constituencies have to deal with proper, proper poverty. You see, no, exactly. And sometimes, I mean, this is, and here I will be a bit more critical, perhaps, or less generous to to our profession in that sense. I mean, there are some awful, awful MPs. There's no question. And, and the, the standard has, I think, it's hard to judge, you know, policemen always younger and all the rest of it. So are they much, are they worse now than they ever were? I don't know. I think, there are some really very, very bad ones in at the moment. But that said, most MPs, especially if they don't have a huge majority, have to engage at constituency level with things mm. that lobby journalists in particular don't. You know, 
we, we, we they don't so yeah they just just doing constituency surgery so housing issues in particular your, your constituency surgery will force an mp to be aware of things to have a broader horizon so the charge that's often level about being out of touch mm. mps do often know better and you, you you saw that a bit actually when when liz truss was sort of talking about about cutting benefits last year and and you know lots of tory mps with majorities under ten thousand said you've got to be kidding you know that's, that's not that's that that's me losing my seat so but what there is Having having offered that defence, there is often a thoughtlessness. We tend to write about the things that we understand and that we care about. A lot of what we've described is very dysfunctional. And what I'm wary of is the point where dysfunctionality can shade into jaundiced conspiracy theory. So people listening to this might think this is the most appalling thing ever. You basically are all drinking and shagging together and scratching each other's backs and how can anyone read what's in the papers whereas the reality is i read the papers and the good ones often there's things that people write where it is true it really is and actually incredibly insightful and i learn things about what's going on so you know you were right to pull me up earlier on the word corrupt yeah you know, it's not a conspiracy okay so when gordon brown took over damien mcbride had this brilliant plan where he was going to deal with i think it was five or six political editors and he'd got the telegraph on board he'd got the mail on board for gordon brown it was it was impressive to watch and i remember sitting there i mean i actually remember, remember walking down the street and seeing him coming out of a lunch with the political editor telegraph and they were both very you know smiling warmly and i thought i'm never going to get anything from this lot I, so i'm going to have to 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 make my own news as it were i i'm going to have to find other sources damien has picked his insiders and not only am i not in them i'm not even in the room next door to the insiders and that was the problem that he found, actually, was whereas when you were running the Treasury, you basically dealt with one reporter from each outlet and you slightly had them over a barrel because they needed things from you around budget time and, and various sort of autumn statement time, various points where where they kind of they couldn't completely burn you. Although, to be fair, you know, there are there are some very good economics editors out there. You come you come and deal with the lobby. And you say, right, I've got six lobby journalists in my pocket. The only problem you then have is the 350 who aren't in your pocket, who realize that they're not going to get anything from you. And who say, right, better blow you up then. And all of those guys who are good at their jobs and hungry and they go out and they find the cracks in the system and they find the people within Whitehall, which is not a monolith, it's a, it's a sort of facade full of cracks they find the unhappy people and they talk to them and they say well you know you're unhappy i can i can help why don't you pour your heart out tell me what it is you're unhappy about and and so the way i'm not i don't think the system works perfectly and i do think the system has huge biases but actually the way that the system does work is that there is always a reporter who will take your story that you know it may be that the mail won't take your story but the mirror will or it may be that the mirror won't take your story but the telegraph will uh, it, so that is the way that it, it, the system rarely works well on any given day, but in aggregate, it does work. Well, and Boris Johnson, I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. I mean, it, not that long ago that it looked like Boris Johnson had just done something so extraordinary and beguiled and mesmerised his own party and also large he was squatting i think like a giant toad i uh, across I, uh, tim tim gets upset when people quote that <laughs> but, um... 
and those of us who are watching thinking this man is unfit to do the job uh, and what he's doing is terrible. He, he's systemically corrupting the, the, the process of politics yeah. by lying about it and, and just pretending that problems can be solved by declaring them solved and all that stuff. Um, starting to think, well, when does he get found out? How much, how much more of this do you need to see before it becomes just an accepted fact? And it did actually. You know, he he exploded in precisely the way that someone who tells too many lies and can't keep all the plates spinning would be expected to explode. Yeah. And it, but it was the it was newspapers that that did that. Well, and ITV. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, no. But it, so so you can always find the cracks in the system. And I mean, I, it took longer with Boris than I would have liked it to have taken, but it it happened. So yeah, that's that would be my my cause for hope. And there are, in fact, sort of again compared to when you and I started this 25 odd years ago, where everything was really in the hands of the newspapers, there's just been this massive sort of democratization of, of news outlets. So, you know, I mean, there, there are all of these little sort of open democracy and byline times and this sort of thing that little outfits. And when they get a story, everybody else follows it because actually, although, you know, there are all sorts of things that are, that are, that are not great about our news media, but there is a muscle reflex for news ultimately that if somebody has a good story we'll run it you know even it, it, they'll 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 tone it down the 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 males sort of trying to get curry gate going as an alternative to party gate and so on but, the, but it's not like the male didn't report party gate they sort of reported it in their own particular way but ultimately you know they still ran the photos they may have said these photos don't really show anyone having a party but <laughs> the, the photos were still there and readers could take their own views i mean going back to actually where i started about the role that trying to be funny or satire or parody has in this there ought to be one of the mechanisms that contains someone like boris johnson was he just sort of beyond parody because self-paradising was part of his shtick he was quite hard to parry. I mean, you know, if, 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 if I don't, I don't think I had him giving his dad a knighthood in a sketch. But you know, it's, it's definitely the kind of thing that I might have thought to make up for something. And then he goes and does it. And there were, there were, there's this odd thing when you're doing the sketch where on on the days when he's at his worst, people will say to you, "Oh, this stuff writes itself," and you go, "No, it doesn't. It really doesn't." Because actually, you have to, you have to sort of find some way to convey just how awful whatever it is that he said and done you know that the, the sort of the um standards committee produced their interim report which basically said you know he must have known that there were parties and uh, he, he must have seen the parties he must have known that you couldn't have parties he in fact said at one point oh dear we're having too many parties <laughs> yes out and said this this report clears me and you just thought it really doesn't i mean there is no honest reading there's just no honest reading of that report that clears you and he is, he has, he's always been a, an admirer of Trump's. You know, you, you could see from 2016, there was a little sort of, ooh, I'm interested to see that that works. And you've written very well, uh, in one of your earlier books about the sort of the, the spin and lies and, and political sort of journalese, uh, the idiom of it. And it's a great book and it really deconstructs something about the, the, the way that politics expresses itself uh, to itself but uh, predicated also on the idea that what you're trying to do is say something that might be technically true but it's not in the spirit of truth you know so you know i can't the classic one that always springs to mind is you know you could say and you know ids and george osborne often did say that a quarter of the whole 
budget is benefits, which makes it sound like you're spending a lot of money on people sitting at home drinking strong lager in the middle of the day watching large flat screen TVs they didn't pay for. Actually, it's pensions, right? That's the reason it's such a big money. The number is is pensions. So it's not untrue what you said, but there's an awful lot of spin and deception and deviances. You, know, you, you get the point. Um, what Boris Johnson, what Trump understood, and that what Boris Johnson, I think, then you know, had also understood but had seen work was, well, what if you just snap the elastic? Mm. Right? What if you don't even try to find something that still has some tether to something that you could call the truth? Yeah. And the answer is nothing. You get away with it. I wrote a book called Would They Lie to You, um, which embarrassingly has a Boris Johnson quote on the cover. It sort of came out, I think, in about 2014. And it was just before the answer to this question turned out to be yes, yes, they would lie to you. And it was all sort of predicated on on how do you how do you get around um, I called it uncommunication. How do you how do you get from having something you don't really want to say to having something you haven't quite said? Embarrassingly, I, I can say at a distance, the best bit of the book was the introduction, which was written by Matthew Paris, in which he said that the, he wished that I had written more about people who just lie. And it, it, the, the book is sort of worth reading for the introduction. Oh, the book is worth reading because I need I need to feed my children. But 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 the introduction it turned out to be incredibly prescient about Trump and Boris. Because it's just, what do you do with people who just look you in the eye and say, but I didn't do that. There were no parties. You know, I never knew about you or whatever it is. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not in this podcast. I never made that recording. Our, our sort of human psychological assumption is, well, you know, he wouldn't say that he wouldn't, people don't, people don't just lie, do they? You know, and, and of course the answer, the answer is some people, mostly they don't. You know, mostly they're deeply uncomfortable lying. Not just Boris and Trump. Theresa May, there were a few moments where she would say things that, that just like, she. I mean, I remember once she said to me, I never said that. And I thought, well, you, you really did say that. I, I've, got the rec- I've got the transcript in front of me of you saying this. And you, it wasn't just an offhand remark. This was, I was asking her about something she'd said outside Downing Street, you know, in a, on, at, at, at a podium. It was a proper, so there is this thing of just, blunt denial and it it's actually it, in a way i think satire is better at it i think satire was better at boris than news reporting was so certainly sort of the kind of news reporting i did at bloomberg where the assumption is essentially was good faith all the way through i am a good faith writer i am writing about good faith people you are good faith readers and there, there's a vulnerability in that chain if somebody is just simply not telling the truth Theresa May was the first time we we had a crack at it was with if you remember the, the 2017 election when she the U-turn the nothing has changed moment and the way that we wrote that up was nothing has changed uh, the prime minister said uh, said after announcing the change nothing has changed I thought because it because it was a change it, she she had changed her policy everybody knew that she had changed her policy and I just thought the only way that I could do this is just to put her words next to but, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post found this with Trump. And I can't remember what solution they came up with. In the end, they, they sort of ran fact checked alongside the news reporting. Mm. But ultimately, to accuse someone of lying generally has been considered in the environment. You're not allowed to do it in the, on the floor of the House of Commons. It's 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 closer to or has traditionally been closer to abuse and invective than uh, just a, an analytical statement. Mm. But you know, it, it, with Boris Johnson. There's a statement of fact. So you know, if you say the prime minister said this thing and it is a lie, <laughs> that's not something that straight reporters are sort of allowed to do by their craft. But if you don't say it's a lie, then you're already 
ceding too much terrain to the lie. Yes. And well, I, I mean, it's interesting in, in the Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, came closer and closer to allowing MPs to accuse each other, to basically to accuse Boris Johnson of lying. Um, and it, not so much to accuse each other, but, but with, with Boris Johnson, there were, you would, you did this formulation that Labour landed on, which is people will, people will think this is a lie. Um, now I don't think that he would have allowed that with a good faith prime minister. I, but I think he, I think he took the view that broadly people would think this was a lie because it was. And again, the optimistic thing, the optimistic view, because we love, we do like to finish the podcast on an optimistic note and we have run out of time is that. It's not a totalitarian society. The raw will and power of the great helmsman does not just decide what is truth and what is falsehood. There are there were objective facts and they came out and Boris Johnson was undone by the truth about what he'd done and about who he was and who he is. And the group of Conservative MPs who are still in denial about that feel to me increasingly marginal. Um, I might be, that might be optimistic, overly optimistic, but I think um, actually factuality reasserted itself from the bog of post-truth politics more thoroughly than seemed likely in 2019. Ultimately, the system worked. Ultimately, you know, journalism did its job. Ultimately, reluctantly, MPs did their job. And indeed, I think Tory MPs are going to pay a price for for the years of Boris. And they're going to pay a price in two ways. First of all, I think they're going to pay a price because there are a lot of people who are revolted by them. And one of the reasons they're revolted by them is because they've had this this awful man lying for years on end in charge of them. And partly even people who don't care about that, which probably is most people, he promised all sorts of things without any plan about how to deliver them. And now Rishi Sunak is stuck trying to work out how to deliver on these, you know, on these promises and these implied promises. I mean, you know, one of the big implied promises is that, you know, sort of life in the north of north of England would look better in sort of in, in 2024 than it did in 2019. Not clear to me that that that's going to be delivered because he had no no plan to deliver it. And I hope that the system works pessimistically. He's off waking, making far more money than you or I or anyone listening to this podcast. You know, he's he, he'll he'll be fine. On the satire point, the final point, yeah. then, because that's this is where we started. Do you worry that this isn't an optimistic point actually? So we might need to edit, re <laughs> change the orders. But do you worry that doing parody and satirizing these people, there is a kind of an, an indulgence there that almost sort of lets them off the hook in the same way that you, the reporter can't say the prime minister lied today. The satirist can't almost, you can't be angry enough because you're trying to also contain it in humor. I think you can. I think sometimes you can be caustic. I mean, I try, I actually try not to just be ranty. I don't know. That I always succeed, but I, because I sort of, I try, one of the things I tried to remember is, is that everyone is the hero of their own narrative and everyone at some level generally probably thinks that what they're trying to do is the right or the reasonable thing to do and you sort of you have to explain why i i i want people to to understand why it is that uh that the home office is is has adopted the the small boats policy that it has because there is there is clearly somebody in government to whom this seems reasonable uh, and i think you can also say well there are you know there are big problems with it while trying not to be i, I don't i suppose what i'm trying to say is i don't think there's any value in saying oh well it's just because uh, suella braverman's wicked you know and evil like you know and and i i think you have to be more 
you have to try and be more interesting than that. But the ability to mock, to somehow to prick the bubble. I mean, actually, one of the the, the, the most successful things I wrote was about Boris Johnson's unfortunate habit of scratching his ass the whole time. Somebody else who won't want to be attributed pointed out to me that he does this. And once you see it, you can't answer it. His hand is always back back down the back of his trousers and the fronts of his trousers as well i would say uh, and yeah well <laughs> other people's hands are down the front of his trousers it's not so much that that, that sort of that, that particularly conflicted with his image of himself because obviously he is a scruff but there was just something about you know z- sort of the 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 way that he would sort of try to he does see himself as a sort of churchillian figure so he does there's something about him you know that although he's scruffy he also sees himself as a sort of great visionary leader of men and the ability to just, you know, truthfully say that as he delivered this particular point, he, you know, he gave his ass a fantastic sort of 10 second scratch that just in it, like a cartoonist or something, it just enabled you to, to, to say this is a, to prick the bubble somehow. No, it's, it's a good analogy. The cartoonists, the, the best ones, like the best sketch writers, of, and you are definitely in their number, uh, foremost among them, in my view, can aggravate yeah, and, and aggress against the vanity of people in power in a way that straight writing, straight reporting and polemic can't, you know, because, because polemic puts people on their guard and polemic serves people who sort of agree with it already. Whereas what you do and what the cartoons do is they can make a truth undeniable, even to the people who would rather not believe it. And that, that's where, that's my answer to the question. I think that's where it, where its power is. And I think you are very good at that. Well, thank you. I try. <laughs> And on that, that's an optimistic note on which we can. That is an optimistic note. Yeah. There we are. Which we can finish the podcast. So, um, thanks very much, Rob, for coming on a podcast. Absolute pleasure to join you. Thanks again to Rob Hutton, parliamentary sketch writer at The Critic magazine, which is also online at thecritic.co.uk. He also co-hosts a podcast with Duncan Weldon called A Pod Too Far, where they watch old war movies and discuss why they love them and what it tells us about the British psyche. I assume they don't watch them in real time, otherwise that'd be a very long podcast. No, of course they don't. They uh, they watch them before they go onto the podcast and make a few notes on the scrap of paper. So I guess it's a bit like um, match of the day with no football, although they have reviewed Escape to Victory, so that's one which does have football on. Anyway, I digress here. I am reliably informed by Rob, to be precise, that they will be back in the studio to record a new season shortly. But in the meantime, there's at least a dirty dozen to listen to. See what I did there? In fact, that's one of the films they've discussed. So as the podster hipsters like to say, go check it out. Anyway, back to politics on the couch. And thanks must also go to you, the audience, for making this far and all your lovely comments. Yes, we do still receive them, even though we've been off air for quite a while now. Well, six weeks, six weeks or so. We'll be back for one more before our summer break. I'm Phil, the producer, saying until next time. Bye. <laughs>